0: Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you for um, the opportunity you give us to engage the Word and to be engaged by the Word. Pray that you would guide our time as you see fit. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As well, I don't normally teach in a hat. However, my big, bald head got sunburned this week, and we got a bit of a train wreck going on here, so (laughs) I'll be in a hat tonight. I hope it's not a distraction. So... (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes. The glory is fading. Yes. Um, so that's that. Um, you, you've, you'll hear me throughout our studies mention a guy named Dever, and I'll say Dever, um, quote it, I'll quote him or say something that or, or that he noted, and that's from this. That our studies as we're going through the Old Testament, this um, book that he wrote, "The Message of the Old Testament: Promises Made" um, by Mark Dever is sort of our outline. And so each week I'm going through this and it's, it, we're using this rather than trying to recreate the wheel and write an entirely new curriculum for, you know, like the whole Old Testament. We decided let's go with a good one that's already there because that's quite the uh, task. So if y'all are wondering when I'd say, well, and Devor mentioned or Devor noted, um, I, I'm, I'm quoting this. And as we go into the summer months, you know, May 8th is our last time in here and then we're done through August. If you're looking for something to read, um, I would I would encourage you to get this, and I don't try to read the whole thing in like you know two or three sittings, but it, it allows you, it, it goes through each book of the Old Testament and does a, um, it's a survey type of study where it's not particularly expositional in nature as far as has, how specific we get on Sunday mornings, but it's appropriate for what we do on Wednesdays. So um, just want y'all to see that and put your eyes on that in case any of y'all are interested in getting it. Mine was used, no, this was new but it was $26. So that's that. So yeah. And the church can order it and get tax free and all that good stuff. So the book budget's a little tight right now, so we're not going to tell you what pay for it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, um, so we're gonna do a three week study on David. Um, and we're looking at these leadership portraits as we're going through. So, um, from last week. From a leadership perspective, how would you describe Samuel? Shift gears a little bit. From a leadership perspective, how would y'all describe Samuel from what we've studied the last few weeks? Consistent? Yeah. Say that again. Obeys God. What does he have to do to obey God? What happens first? He listens. That's right. Samuel's life can be marked by listen and obey. Um, He's consistent in listening and obeying. Um, I, I, I never really studied the life of Samuel much before it was time for me to teach on it. And all I knew was the story I heard as a kid a bajillion times about him hearing God call out to him and thinking it was Eli. And that's all I really knew. But in studying the life of Samuel, I mean, that guy is a seriously Good, God-centered, consistent. Listen and obey, leader. And if you have any leadership role at all, or you follow or people who are leaders, it's really good to look at a life like that and consider how he moves. He was marked by listening and obeying to God. Now, how was Saul? If you were to describe uh, the leadership perspective from a leadership perspective, how would you describe Saul? Arrogant, self-centered. Handsome. Well, now we know why he's arrogant and self centered. He's a pretty boy. What, what do we know about Saul? Like, right as we meet him, what are the things that scripture chooses and God's breathed out word to communicate about Saul from the beginning? Handsome and what? Tall. He's handsome and tall. How about that? That's all you need to be a good leader. He was handsome and Saul. The problem was, while he was impressive, there's a lot of leaders that you can look at and be like, man, that's just an impressive person. They walk in, they open their mouth, and people just kind of sit down, be quiet, and listen. I mean, they have um, a, a bigger stature than other people. They, they have a bigger voice than other people. A lot of our presidents um, throughout our short history as a country have been impressive men who, who sort of carry themselves in that manner and they're impressive. The problem with Saul was that while he was so impressive, he was also very impressed with himself. That, that's when y'all are saying arrogant, that's what we're talking about. He was very impressed with himself. He, he thought very highly of himself. He thought that um, his perspective on things was just as good as anybody else's. And there were times where God spoke to Samuel and Samuel spoke to Saul. And Saul would say, well, I'll just, I'll do my own version of that. That you just said. Or Samuel would say, Don't you offer that sacrifice until I get there. And Saul said, Well, you took too long. I went ahead and did that anyway. And you see these dynamics at play where he wouldn't even pray to God about big decisions. He would just say, I got this. And so he was impressive, but he was also very impressed with himself, which led to his downfall, which we looked at last week. Another thing we considered was the question What should we do when we see a prevalence of evil? What should we do when we see a prevalence of evil? And that question stemmed from the reality that God uses all things for good for his people. What do we call it? Knowing that God does that when we see evil, what do we call evil? Evil. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We still call it evil. So, some of us have been on the receiving end of evil in a number of ways uh, from someone's actions, being lied to, being just sinned against. And the reality that God uses those things for, for kingdom good, and if we're members of his kingdom, that will ultimately be for our good, that, that reality doesn't mean that it's not evil. Like if someone does evil to you, I'm not going to comfort you by saying, well, God uses it for good, so it's not really evil. No. It's evil, and we saw that in the way that Samuel responded to the way that Israel was moving. He said, no, no, what you're doing is evil, but what could he expect? He could expect God's goodness, and what else did he say that he would do? You can expect God's goodness in that. In his time and in his way, it's not always immediate, but what else did, was he supposed to do for those who were doing the evil deeds? Pray for them, yeah. He said, far be it for me to sin by not praying for you. And then he said that he would instruct them and, and teach them on the, holy, uh, the way to live in a holy manner as opposed to in an evil manner. So we see that um, as, as these guys are leading, one of the things that comes out is when you see evil, you call it evil, you look to God for the good in it, and we can expect God's goodness in God's time and pray for those who are being evil. So, I mean, in our context, you, you think um, the uh, Gosnell abortion clinic, You think the Boston Marathon bombing. You think those things that are genuinely evil. We know that God can use them for kingdom good. We don't know how. We don't know his timing, but we trust God. We walk by faith. And so um, we can expect that he'll work those things for good. And in some ways, you already see those things playing out. So that's kind of the grand scheme. But then there's a smaller scheme in each of our lives where we need to pay attention to those details as well. Last week, we considered that Saul became tormented by jealousy as David's kingship increased. And this week, that's where we're shifting our focus, is to David. And we're going to stay there for the remainder of the semester, like I mentioned earlier. Aside from Christ, no other king of Israel is given such a thorough account in the scriptures as David. And because of this, um, we've decided not to rush our time, but to stop down and look at this life that was so meticulously chronicled in the word. If Saul was the impressive man, David was the impressed man. And we're going to go through a few questions here, because what I want us to do is awaken our thoughts to our struggles. Before we engage the text, I want everyone in this room to awaken your thoughts to your struggles, because it's not enough just to come in here and learn some new things about God or learn some new things about Christian history, but this intersects with our lives, and so I want us to consider um, what are the things we're struggling with, and I think some of the things that Um, that we're going to look at here are are struggles for a number of people sitting here. Maybe not everybody, but I'd say probably the majority of it. And they're struggles for me. I'll I'll confess that. David was marked by being impressed. He's marked by and dominated by his regard for the Lord. That's that's what David's known by. Um, Dever, in this book that I mentioned earlier, notes, Some people desire to impress you with themselves, while others leave you impressed with their God. Some people try and they desire to impress you with themselves while others leave you impressed with their God. So let's, let's look at the negative first. What are some ways that we can get wrapped up in trying to impress others or each other? How much we know, how much we make, how much we have. How good we are, how much we pray. Yeah. Yeah. Look at me, world, I'm praying. What else? What are some other ways we try to impress? Come on. Each of us should have 20 examples in our own head. Say that again. Things you buy, yeah. How long our prayers are, yeah. Because I'm a pastor, every time our family gets together, They're like, Scott, will you you pray for us before the meal? I'm like, all right, everybody, get ready. This is going to be awesome. It's what I do. I'm a pastor. Oh, heavenly Father. I mean, it's just like, yeah. And then we have some family members that do that for real. So in a sense, I'm mocking them, but it's all for kingdom good, I guess. So what else? Trying to impress others. Oh, yeah, a well-landscaped and manicured yard, yes. (laughs) No, some people use their kids. We better be careful about that around here because there's a lot of cute kids, I'm telling you. I remember being worried before our kids were born because I'd go by the nursery and it looked like a baby gap catalog. I was like, look at all these adorable children. I was like, we're going to have the ones that are like ugly and you feed them from a distance and it's going to be weird. But, um, but yeah, we, um, I, don't, I don't think they're ugly, so that's cool. Um, but yeah, we try to impress people with our kids. What are some other ways? Knowledge, Knowledge yeah. We know that it can puff up. What, how else? Our busyness, yes. Yes. When's the last time someone asked how you were doing and you simply said, quite well? Usually it's, oh, man, well, I mean, we got T-ball practice at six, and then we got a small group at seven, and then we got to do this, and then, you know, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. It's just life's just crazy. That's usually where we end up. And, and there's something, there is something to that where you're trying to impress people with, man, we are very busy people. I've found myself in the past trying to use my own anxiety as a way to impress people because I thought, well, if you see that I'm anxious about this thing, then you know that I really care about it. If you know I'm losing sleep over this, you're going to believe what I say about this, things like that. So it can weave its way in in a number of ways. Um, Dave Ramsey has a quote where he says, we try to impress people we don't like by buying things we don't need with money we don't have. It's a pretty good way to sum it up. Impress people we don't like by buying things we don't need with money we don't have. So, on the flip side, what would it look like for a people with the goal of leaving others impressed with our God? Well, taking every opportunity to witness to Him. Now, how do we do that without looking like, you know, those weird Christian people that. It's like, hey, how are you? Can I tell you about Jesus? I don't know you at all. It's like that, you know, how do we keep from being the awkward. There you go, yeah to, you to, like, and- Share the Roman road, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah, yeah, and those opportunities are there every day there's a, there's a certain dailiness about about your godwardness and and how you move, yeah <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> And that relieves y'all because you don't have to be the awkward one. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving others impressed by our God. There's just this picture there of, of guiding each encounter, like just really wanting God to guide each encounter. I, I remember in junior high and high school, it was always awkward when I was around people I didn't know. And there was always, I mean, I always felt awkward. Just like, man, what, what's the point of even being here? Like, what, what am I doing? What do I give a rip about? What, do I want to be here? Okay, if I am here, these people are here. What do I care about these people? What, like, and I just remember this awkwardness. Some of y'all had awkward times, and maybe it was just me, and now this feels awkward. Um, but but I, I, I think about, you know, sometimes I'm in settings, and I just, it can be uncomfortable. You can not know what the expectations are. But if there's always this expectation that you want to leave others impressed by your God, I think that can guide you and encourage you and equip you. And warn you and admonish you. You know, you're not going to step off and, and say one thing, but you may make it a point to sow the seed of the gospel in another manner. But this, this, this picture of wanting to leave others impressed by our God, as we read David's words and the story of David's life, the, thing that's, the things that stick out in 1 Samuel especially are God's activities, God's purposes, God's name, and God's glory. It's different from Saul's life. Saul wasn't marked by those things. You didn't read Saul's life and see all these things about God. But when you read about David, it's God's activities, God's purposes, God's name, and God's glory. And, and what I want us to see tonight is that this type of life, and we're about to get into the text, but we're, we're doing this on purpose the way we're doing it. This type of life is not supposed to be an anomaly. It's not, man, we're not supposed to look at David and say, man, what a, what a freak of nature. I mean, Wow. He was marked by God's purpose and God's will. That's not supposed to be an anomaly. Um, People of faith are to be marked by this, that we live in the reality that all of creation is about God, not you and me. So your day, as you walk, as you engage, as you have conversations, as you look around, I mean, in Genesis, it actually says, God made trees pleasing to the sight. I mean, when was the last time you looked at a tree and said, thank you, God, that's pleasing to the sight? I mean, little things. He says, look at the birds, consider the lilies. He says, look out for the interests of others and not only for your own interests. And there's this, this living that the Christian is supposed to have where all of creation is about God, not you and me. And that should lead us, in fact, I read one time I was really challenged by this, that that means other people are going to be interesting, and you should be interested in them. You should care about them and where they are and how they feel and what they're doing. And if you say, how are you doing to someone, like, say it in a manner where you're looking for an answer. If you're meeting the teacher at your kid's school or meeting other parents or meeting a new neighbor, getting to know them is a God-glorifying thing to see how God has used them and how God has led them and the gifts that he's given them and the way that they talk and the thoughts that they have and the conclusions that they draw. Being involved in that as a Christian can be a worshipful thing. It can be a God-oriented thing because you're, you're remembering in all those things, all of creation's about God, not you and me. So as as much as we're engaging each other, it has to be about God. So how do we get there in in our thoughts? David's faith provides a picture of what is supposed to characterize the nation of Israel. This is what I want us to see as we begin to look at the life of David here. His life is a picture of what it's supposed to be like for the entire nation of Israel. Consider for a moment, does your faith characterize how God's people are supposed to be seen? That was a challenging question that popped up as I was looking at this. Does your faith characterize how God's people are supposed to be seen? Or to say it another way, can a stranger or a friend look at your life and have an accurate view and an accurate picture of the character of the entire church? That's how you're to carry yourself. That's how David carried himself. When people looked at David's life, that's how the nation of Israel was supposed to look as he led them. And so for each of us, saints equipped for a work of ministry, given gifts, indwelled by the Holy Spirit... We're supposed to live in a manner where people can look at our lives and see people who are not being conformed to the world, but are being transformed by the renewal of our minds that by testing, we may know what's good and pleasing to God, that our whole life would be a sacrifice to him. And so I asked that for, for genuine reflection, like take a moment and think if someone looks at me, will they have an accurate picture of the character of the church? Will they have an accurate picture of the character of the church? if you're a Christian, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's not a call for perfection because the character of the church is a people who are very humbly, needy, and dependent upon Christ. But if Christ never comes up, no one can know how humble and needy and dependent you are upon him. And so don't hear me saying, make sure your noses are clean and your hair is parted and you don't ever cuss and all these things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, try to steer clear away from profanity and things like that. But it goes, it's beyond that, that are you a person who's walking in utter and complete and total dependence upon God. Because that's what we're seeing in David. David was a sinner. And we're gonna see his sin more next week and the week after as we, as we look at some things. But he was a man after God's own heart. So are, are we people after God's heart? And can people look at us, see the character of the church and therefore the goodness of our God? That's something that challenges us in this study. This faith in, in David's life comes out in a significant manner in his confrontation with Goliath. Most of us know this story, but we're going to look at it. So look at chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17, and I'm going to read 23 through 50, which is a pretty good little jaunt, but we're going to read it, because I want us to climb into the story. It's 1 Samuel seventeen, twenty-three through 50. As he talked with them... Um, it so said, David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers who, who were um, uh, ready for battle, but not battling. 23, it says, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So David hadn't heard this yet, and David is, is listening. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. I mean, little David, David's not the, the Saul. David's not the tall, handsome, and impressive dude. He's the little guy. He's the little brother. He, he's the one who, if you look at the group, that's not the one you're going to pick to be, to be the, the stand-up guy who's going who's to lead people. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would would dare say such things? Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? It's like, you annoying little pest, why are you here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. I mean, thanks, brother. Brother. You just said, I've neglected my duties and I have an evil heart. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, "The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine." And Saul said to David, "Go, and the Lord be with you." Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with the coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. So he, he did have the handsome thing going, but he was ruddy. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? It's hard for me not to do the voice, voice of Goliath on Veggie Tales. just so y'all know. It's hard for me not to do that. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his head and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. I'm gonna keep reading just because. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew and uh, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. I mean, that's bad, right? right? That's so much better than the kid's story. He killed him with a rock and cut off his head and then took it to, um, back to camp. That's, that's remarkable. Brought it back to Jerusalem. So this story has been so horribly misused that I want to look at it a little more closely. What causes David to become enraged? David wasn't just some airhead little boy who's like, I think I can throw a stone and kill the giant. He was enraged. He was hacked. They were mocking God. That's, that's Dishonor shown to God was what enraged David. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Dishonor was being shown to his God, and, and the Philistine was making a mockery of God, and that rightly enraged little David. Now, where is David's confidence? In God, the Lord will deliver me. You heard him say it. The Lord will deliver me. Too often we take the story of David and turn it into a story about courage, strength, and personal confidence in your own abilities. I've heard it taught like that before when I was younger that, see, God had prepared him and, and he, he had, and, and within himself, he had all that he needed when he went to fight Goliath because he, he could sling stones. So all that he needed, it didn't matter. He could have been the best stone slinger ever. And it was God who would deliver him. So he desperately needed God more than he needed any of his own abilities, more than he needed to reach down deep inside and find what he needed. That's the wrong message, the wrong message. Dever notes, what is good and right about David is that he has faith and confidence in the God that he serves. He knows that God is the point and that God will supply. That's where David's confidence lies, he wasn't just an arrogant little guy with a little man syndrome who thought he could beat a giant and prove everybody wrong. He didn't have a big chip on his shoulder. He revered the Lord rightly and it caused him to move in a very, very bold manner. And what we see here is a headless giant at the end of the story. So David was the great ends up being the greatest king of Israel. That's what we see in David, the greatest king of Israel. He provides a picture of a man who's not consumed with himself, but he is consumed with the Lord. David receives his wisdom and strength by understanding and relying on God. So, so bringing it to our context now, what does that look like practically for us today? Practically for us today, how do we receive wisdom and strength by understanding and relying on God? What's that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't boast in ourselves, we humbly give God credit for things. So how how about the strength and the wisdom? How do, how do we get that? Time in the word? Prayer? Fellowship with other believers? How does that play out? How does that work? Like circumstantially, like play out a scenario for me. How does that work? What are some challenges we could face and God actually gives us the strength and the wisdom we need? Via his design, and then how does that play out? How does that work? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a great point. Without people around us, it's hard to make wise choices when those big choices come up for for decision time. I mean, I really want you all to be thinking about your own lives. There's not a single section of your life that God is disinterested in. There's no part where he's like, no, I really want this, but that I'm not so concerned about. God's deeply concerned about every portion of your life. And so as you're making decisions and as you're moving, I mean, it's easy for me to just, even in parenting, I'm a, I'm a pretty young parent. I, my oldest kid is seven, but we do have four of them. So every day you're going and going and going, and you can get into a rhythm even in parenting where it's like, well, I do what I do. I mean, I know how to respond to that. I know how to, you know, they're, they're killing each other again. I know how to fix that. You know, they broke something. Okay, I know how to respond. But, but am I prayerful? Am I looking to God? Am I, am I considering what I know from the word to, to gain the strength and the wisdom I need to apply it to the situation? The same thing can happen in marriage, I mean, just because you've been married for years doesn't mean that you don't need, it's not like you really need God at the beginning of your marriage, and then later on, you just barely even need him anymore at the end. That's not how it works. There's a new dynamic at play um, where parents raise their children, and, and this has come into focus in the last few years, where parents raise their children, and it's sort of a national thing, um, and then they become empty nesters. Their, their kids grow up, and they move away. And you have two people, a man and a woman, husband and wife, looking at each other saying, who are you? They don't even know each other because their entire life revolved around their children. And so they don't know how to be husband and wife. And you have these dynamics where you have people in their 50s and 60s who have two, three decades of marriage under their belt and they just call it quits because it's like, man, I'm living with a stranger. And so there are dynamics that are at play every day where how do we parent, how are we a friend, How how is this playing out, and we we genuinely have to spend time in the Word. I, I, I hear responses, and I do it in my own life, where it's like, I'll have like an aha moment, where I'm like, in the Word, and I've got a situation, I'm like, oh, okay, all right, all right, that's helpful. Like, our whole life should be aha moments. You see what I'm saying? Like, We have those moments where God will connect the dots or someone will say something like, I'll be like, man, I'm really struggling with this. And someone will say, well, have you prayed about it? And I'm like, no, I haven't. How about that? I'm a pastor and I forgot to pray about that thing I'm struggling with. Awesome, thank you for community. These things play out and it's easy to just lose focus and lose sight of things. But like these aha moments, like sometimes we think of them as like, God will speak to us clearly or give us some insight or give us some direction or give us some strength or give us some wisdom really in those big moments where we need it. But that's not like a four or five times a year kind of thing. That is every moment of every day for the life of the believer. I can't do jack squat well on my own. Nothing. Romans 14 says, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. If I'm moving in faith in all things, I have to be consistently tempered by the word and step with the spirit, walking in community, accountable, transparent, knowing and being known. That's how these things play out. That's how strength and wisdom um, is found. We read, we meditate, we pray through the word. We're an active member of a local church, know and be known. There's a dynamic here in Hunt County, especially maybe, where for young adults, uh, church is just so optional. It's just so optional. It's like, well, I went as a kid, I noticed it was kind of a mockery and a joke, and I won't need to, I don't need that in my adult life now. And um, it's not just young adults. I mean, I've, I've met people of all ages that think that it's just so optional. Man, we need each other. I desperately need to be a member of a body. No matter how smooth my spiritual walk is on my own, and how long and uninterrupted my quiet times are, and how... Deep my meditations are on the word. I desperately need a community of people walking with me, and me walking with them. Gifts are they're realized and they're they're um, affirmed and encouraged in community. And there's a lot of fruit. I mean, we have the gifts of the Spirit, so we produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so, as a community, we want to produce much fruit for God's glory. But we can't do that if we opt out of the local church. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. he fought a lion yeah. which could tear him from the yep he didn't say oh there's you take the lamb and I'm going to get the rest of all over here yeah. so he went after the lion and he went after a bear yeah. all these things and the Lord shows himself faithful and protecting him yeah. in those things and so with each time when we rely on faith and the Lord to provide and take care of us and the next time we enter our scenario because hmm. he's proved himself before yeah yeah. And so it's like nothing it gets easier, but there's more of a peace and a comfort in that because yeah. you know you've seen God demonstrate Himself to you yeah. in those ways. So I think that just as was another thing that propelled Him and brought Him to that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's that's our own a great also. point. to Renee or, you know, to, mm-hmm. to Aaron, or, you know, then that also mm-hmm. strengthens my faith know, yep. okay, I can depend on him. Maybe I haven't had individually that yeah. situation, but I've seen him be faithful to those around me, so yeah. it builds a faith, yeah. faith in us watching others' faith Yeah. Through. Yeah, the, the community of believers, is, there's just a dynamic to it that we can't even really create on our own. I mean, the unity we have in Christ is a gift. It's, it's not something we create. And so we're called to preserve it. And the way we preserve it is, is through making sure we hear those stories. I mean, if you've ever lost a, a child, I mean, others in the community of faith who have maybe gone through that, man, there are jewels there where you can walk together in a, in a really sober manner. Um, if you've had any hardship, I mean, I mean in our economy, job loss, um, financial woes are not abnormal. And when you see other people trusting God, it's a, there's times where even as a man, guys, we, we can say, okay, they're trusting God. They're not missing meals. They're not sleeping outside. I'll trust the Lord. And, and it, interestingly, as you'd let those needs be made known, those kinds of things happen in community too. And so that experience that you are talking about, it's, it's important because when, when David was, you know, he could have just said, I've killed lions and bears, period. He could have said that. But sometimes we need to check each other where it's like, yeah, you killed the bear, but God, I mean, totally delivered you. I mean, that bear would have totally killed you if God would have, wouldn't have delivered you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Hypothetically speaking, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That is a scenario that could play out potentially. Subtle. The importance of our hearts um, focus is, is recorded in, in the encounter when Samuel saw David's older brother, Eliab. I mentioned earlier, but just look at the previous chapter, chapter 16. Um, 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 7. Now, Eliab was the one that we saw saying, David, what are you doing here? I know your heart is evil. You just want to watch a fight. But here, it says in 16, 6 through 7, um, when they came, he, Samuel, uh, looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. A few questions for, for reflection for us. What is your heart focused on? And when we read that verse, we should stop and say, what is my heart focused on? What's most important to me? Do you find more satisfaction in God or in other things? I mean, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Does he look at your heart and say, That is someone who is satisfied with me? Or does he say, That's someone who's satisfied with money, with power, with you name it, fill in the blank? Ease. Where do your heart's desires lead you? Where are you focused? Where are you spending time? What's the last thing you think about at night? and the first thing you think about in the morning. Dever notes the Christian life is the satisfying life because God created us to know him. You hear that? The Christian life is the satisfying life because God created us to know him. And in knowing him there's satisfaction. In my life personally, I struggle with discontentment horribly. It's all, it's a struggle. I just as soon, I almost look at it like I look at alcoholism. You talk to an alcoholic who has been clean for 20 years, and they say, I'm an alcoholic, and I've been clean for 20. That's almost the way I look at, at um, discontentment. Man, I, I can struggle with it. I could, I, it could not have even been on my radar for months or years, but I'll tell you what, I can become discontent in two seconds. You show me something that someone has that I want, and I'm not sure if I can get it. Oh, man, I, it's not. I don't just sit there and whine about it. I'll just pine and figure out how to work it how to make it happen, how to get my way. Uh, Quit nodding your head, Lindsay Sutton. (laughs) Uh, uh. It's in in testimony time, all right? (laughs) Teaching here. Um, But the Christian life is a satisfying life because the whole point of the Christian life is that we belong to God and we have fellowship with God and he created us in that manner. So if you're moving in a manner that you're not created, you're not going to be satisfied. God created you to have fellowship with him. And if you're turning your back on that created purpose and saying, no, 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 I'd rather have fellowship with these people or these things, and this thing over here is more important than God, then there's not going to be satisfaction in it because he created you. He created you in his image to have relationship with him. He sent his son to die on a cross so that you could have fellowship with him. He doesn't take that lightly. He doesn't... He's not like the kind of friend that says, man, I don't care, just call whenever. No, like there are some people that are remarkable like that. You can see them after two, three years and it's like you never missed a beat. You're like, man, that's so good. That's not how God is. God wants every moment of every day. He created you to be in an intimate relationship and walk with him in your journey of faith. Debra goes on to say, so don't be surprised when by giving yourself over to God, you find true joy. Huh. And when you have a heart of love for God, You can happily give yourself in service to him, as David did when he went out against Goliath. You ever thought about that? The reason that David went out against Goliath wasn't just because he was confident in the fact that he killed bears and lions. The reason he went out against Goliath is because his heart was satisfied with God. And here's one speaking against God, an uncircumcised Philistine mocking God. And his satisfaction was so full in God, that's what caused him to go out, not just because he could throw stones or sling stones. A heart that is satisfied in God is a heart that's full. Nothing else in the world satisfies it. And it demands nothing else. It gives itself freely. Such a heart is dangerous to the evil one in all his hellish ways. I think if we're all honest, we could say maybe our heart's not full of God. Maybe it's full of other things. Maybe there's a whole lot of other desires that creep in. And maybe it can be a desire for something Maybe it could just be a desire for a circumstance. I'm tired of this season, God. I want more than anything for this season to be over. I'm tired of this strain in this relationship, God. I want more than anything for the strain to be gone. And God says, I'm your God, trust me. I work all things for the good of my children because I work it for the forward movement of my kingdom. And if you're a member of my kingdom, it's gonna benefit you. That's why he calls us to steadfastness. That's why he calls us to perseverance. Perseverance. We don't change things overnight. For those of us who've struggled with, um, with putting things off till the last minute, um, what's that called? What's the fancy word for? Procrastination. Yeah, I'm good at that. Um, one of the side effects of being a procrastinator is that you think you can get things done like that. It's like, yeah, I had two weeks, but I only need one night to get this done. Well, then you start viewing your spiritual life in the same manner. You're like, well, yeah, I've been walking in that sin for years, but I made a decision today. I'm not going to do that anymore, so I'm just going to fix it overnight. And then all of a sudden, you're tempted the next day, and you fall into something, and you're like, wait, I, I thought I could fix it immediately. And that's why there's a journey that we're called to that's about steadfastness and persevering and doing it in community because, one, you can't do it yourself, and, two, it's rarely ever going to happen overnight. Now, there is I have seen miraculous healing in people's lives where they struggled with something for years and years, and they repented, they confessed, they gave it to God, and, and, and he did something amazing in a moment's notice. I've seen it happen. But I also see in Scripture the one who, if he comes to you and sins seven times in the same day, you must forgive him if he repents. So like the sixth time, he's coming to you saying, hey, I stepped off into that sin and sinned against you. Like there was that first time at nine, and I did it again at ten, and then again at eleven, and then again at 12, and then I did it again at 1, but here at 2 o'clock, I know I did it again, but I, I apologize. Will you forgive me? Scripture says you must forgive him. So it's not always immediate. So we persevere in community. So, some questions I mean, again, are you truly satisfied in Christ, demanding nothing else, compelled to give of your time and your efforts and your resources, expecting? nothing in return. That should have an effect on us as spouses. That should have an effect on parenting. That should have an effect on our friendships. That should have an effect on the way we interact with strangers. Um, Look at uh, chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. You you can't go through 1 Samuel without looking at this. And we'll close with this mainly. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. the Philistines captured the Ark of God and brought it from, um, from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So it's really bad when the Ark is captured because that's the symbol of the presence of God and the power of God with this people. So you're thinking, oh man, Israel's done. The Philistines got the Ark. It's like getting their mojo. And uh, in chapter two, then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. That was one of their gods, one of the Philistines' gods. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, their God. This, that's a real pathetic thing. They took their God, who'd fallen on his face. They picked their God up. They placed him back where their God went. They went back to what they were doing. But when they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. They don't want to lose their heads and limbs. Um, this picture... Um, the defeat of God's people, I mean, first of all, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, you're wrong. That's funny. Their God fell on his face. Oh, y'all thought that was just a coincidence? Guess what? Head and limbs, gone. Just a little torso sitting there in front of the ark. That's funny. God has a sense of humor. But what I want us to see in this is that it looks, I mean, the ark being captured, I mean, that's a big deal. It looks like they kind of lost the game. But the defeat of God's people indicates no defect in God's power. If you experience defeat, if you experience something that's really horrible, maybe it's evil, maybe it's wicked, maybe it's just you, you got wiped out, sideswiped, unexpected, you are unhinged. That, that says nothing about a defect in God's power. It's something we have to see here because they're without this thing that showed that God was central to their, their being and his power was with them and now they're without it. And God's saying, yeah, but I can use that too. Indeed, it appears that God's purposes are behind the defeat as he moves in his mysterious ways. We've got to remember that. Even when it seems like, man, I don't know how you take this, these lemons and make lemonade. I don't get it. This is just horrible. Even in that seemingly horrible defeat, God's making his ways known. There's mysteriousness there. We need not try to live and move and think in a manner where we remove the mysterious movement of God. We should embrace it as an act of worship. We're going to continue the next couple weeks and talk about David's life. Next week, we'll look more at his kingdom and how it grows and and some of the high points. And then we'll look at his fall. Most of us know David Bathsheba. He was a murderer and an adulterer as well. So there's some really interesting dynamics here that we can look at with the life of David. Let's pray and we'll be done. (coughs) Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for our time in the word tonight. I pray that as we look at the life of David that we would um, make it a point in our own lives um, to to really consider tonight, before we go to bed, uh, are our hearts satisfied with you? Are we living in a manner where people can look at us and see what the character of the church is supposed to be like? Do we leave people impressed with ourselves, or do we leave people impressed by our God? Lord, I know that I worry a lot about what people think, and I pray that you would help me with that. I pray that anyone else here, you would help them with that and help them to see that first and foremost, above all things, your glory is uh, to be shared, uh, to be put on display in the lives of image bearers who are created in your image. You're very good to us, God. You're, You're so patient with us. Just the fact that we're sitting here on a Wednesday night toward the end of April reading these things and encouraged by these things, just shows how incredibly patient you are uh, with us, and you are steadfast with us. I pray that your steadfastness towards us would encourage us and quicken us to, to remain steadfast in our own lives, and to be gentle and patient with each other. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.